My initial reaction to the injunction is I am relieved. I'm relieved for our clients and for their employees and really for all immigrants in the United States. It was shocking for sure. Intrusive. I mean, what they were requesting, a credit, credit report. <laughs> I'm not applying for a credit card or, or a home loan or something like that, you know. So. so intrusive and I think unnecessary. And that would be a shame if in the future, if it was allowed to, to move forward as written, because uh, I do think that it will have a, an incredibly negative impact on not only just the amount of immigrants who are coming to our country, but the value that they bring to our community. To spring something this large on the public with like less than two business days, we're talking Friday and then Monday, is a, outside of what should be required in a rule of law society, really. So by definition, a public charge is someone who is understood to likely become dependent on the government, be it federal, state, or local, for subsistence. A public charge for immigration purposes is inadmissible, meaning that this individual is ineligible for a visa or ineligible for admission to the United States or possibly ineligible for adjustment of status. On August 14, 2019, the Department of Homeland Security published a final rule on determining inadmissibility on public charge grounds. Public charge, as in what constitutes a public charge, is redefined to mean a non-citizen who receives one or more public benefits as defined in immigration regulations for more than 12 months in the aggregate within any 36-month period. So the regulation also changes the criteria for determining whether an applicant is, quote-unquote, likely to become a public charge meaning that USCIS will now require considerably more invasive evidence and documentation and is going to apply a totality of the circumstances test to weigh all of the factors applicable for each applicant. So specifically, on the night of October 9th, which I believe most practitioners discovered on the morning of October 10th, USCIS published new editions of forms I-485, which is for uh, green card applications or adjustment of status, I-129, which is the form used for H-1B petitions, uh, and I-539, which is more commonly used for H-4 applications, just to name a few. But more problematic, in my opinion, was USCIS also created a new form, the I-944 form, which all adjustment applicants are required to complete and submit, which is an 18-page form that goes into significant detail about an applicant's financial condition. The new forms were to go into effect on Tuesday, October 15th, which essentially resulted in advance notice of three business days. But late this afternoon, a federal judge in New York issued a temporary injunction against the Trump administration's public charge rule, which essentially prevents these forms and the new rule from going into effect on October 15th. So although we are now in the process of observing how long the injunction is going to last and what the next step is going to be, we do think it's important to call out the new evidence that's now going to be taken into consideration, the types of questions that our clients are going to be asked, and some of the new documentation that will now be required for purposes of a lot of our filings. So in terms of evidence, criteria that will be taken into consideration now includes income, assets, age, health, education, but now adjustment applicants will be required to provide evidence of all debt, 
government assistance requested in the past or a government assistance or public benefits that the individual has applied for and recently withdrawn from, and also English skills in terms of proficiency in the English language. Uh, required information and documentation will also includes information about mortgages, car loans, credit card debt, education loans, tax debt, liens, personal loans, credit score, bankruptcy history, health insurance, um, you know, whether or not the individual has ever benefited from Medicaid, SNAP, SSI, all of this is now being requested. The adjustment, assuming this rule does eventually go into effect, will require not only disclosure of this information in the form of information, but also documentation and support. So essentially what happens is as a result of the new final rule, which I believe is still eligible for some notice and comment until November 12th, consular officers and agencies are given further instruction in terms of what must be considered when making a determination as to whether or not someone is a public charge. And then within the case of USCIS, there are certain forms that have been revised to incorporate the public charge analysis into petitions and applications where these sorts of questions have historically never been asked. So here's what happens with immigration practitioners around the country. On October 10th, we wake up to the fact that there are certain forms that have been revised the night before, right? And of the forms that have been revised, one is the I-485, which is the form that's required for a green card application. The other is the I-129, which is the form that is used for an H-1B petition. And the other is an I-539. One common use of this particular form is the H-4 application, okay? All of a sudden now, these revised forms contain lengthy sections in which, in which USCIS is specifically asking whether or not the applicant or beneficiary has ever at any point applied for or received some sort of like a public benefit. In addition, and what I personally find to be the most troubling, is that a new form was released called the I-944, which is now or up until this afternoon was, as of October 15th, required for all adjustment of status applicants, which is essentially 18 pages of extremely detailed and comprehensive financial requests. So now for the first time in history, adjustment applicants are going to have to provide itemized lists of all debts and liabilities down to mortgages, their credit score and credit history, liens, personal loans, student debt, and so on and so forth. In addition to providing this information, applicants will be required to provide documents in support of this newly requested information. I think what this is going to do, it's, it's going to create a lot of churn in terms of, first of all, the case prep process. Okay, because all of a sudden now individuals are going to be asked for documents and information that they've never really had to provide in the past when it comes to their immigration journey in the United States. Right. Yeah. Not to mention the standard of review that the um, officers are being given, which is known as the totality of circumstances test, I think is problematic in that. 
how is an immigration officer supposed to properly and adequately determine whether or not someone is in a financially stable situation, right? For example, let's say that the officer in their discretion is not satisfied with the financial documents that the adjustment applicant provides, right? What is that officer going to do? Issue an RFE? And is that RFE going to ask for additional documents such as please provide more evidence of the fact that you've adequately paid your student loans or the fact that you have only one mortgage or so on and so forth? At that point, an immigration officer is issuing a request for evidence containing requests that are so far beyond the purview of what an immigration officer is qualified to do that has the potential to just really like get off the rails, you know? Not to mention that this is so new and so kind of like, out in left field that there are going to be numerous questions that individual employees and clients are going to ask of us in terms of, oh, well, one time I was late on a student loan payment, it hit my credit score, you know, it took several months for me to get it resolved with one of the credit agencies, so on and so forth. How is that going to impact my adjustment of status application? The most, as attorneys, that we can tell that individual is, well, we don't think it necessarily will, but then again, we're looking at the totality of circumstances. I mean, these are very, very complicated conversations now that are taking place within the context of an immigration benefit. So I think for anyone who's in the backlog, you know, if you're from India or China, these are things that maybe you can start getting together. They're not, you know, if you're a few years away from being current, you know, there's obviously materials that you can work on, but for the folks that are current eligible to file for adjustment of status, yeah, instead of just having to produce the medical examination, now you're going to have to produce things like, you know, tax returns, evidence of health insurance, you're going to have to get your credit report. And these are, I would say, confidential and personal information that you're going to have to turn over to your attorney. And generally what we'll do is, and I think, you know, we're still learning the form and digesting all this information is... Uh, we'll provide folks with a list, but at the end of the day, foreign nationals need to be prepared. They're going to have to start disclosing a lot more, I would say, personal and private information to not only their attorneys, but also the, the government if, if they want this benefit. What the government is looking for uh, in terms of benefits received, so they want, to, they want to see if individuals have received any sort of federal, state, cash assistance, income maintenance, SSI, Temporary assistance for needy families, uh, and these are all on, on the uh, the instructions for the I nine four four. So I think we're going to have a lot of questions in terms of if individuals have received some sort of state or federal benefit in the past. Does it does it you know uh, qualify as something that has to be disclosed, or whether it's something that's exempt here? So I think not only are immigration attorneys going to have to learn about you know public benefits more so than than we than we previously had to. Uh, but we're going to have to get well-versed in, in a lot of the vernacular. So I think it, it kind of opens itself up not only to you know, a Pandora's box for, for individuals having to supply more documents to us, uh, the attorneys, but also having to determine what's relevant and what's not in terms of benefits and or such things as assets and, and liabilities. But what we do not know is when they say that they're going to weigh something negatively versus weigh something positively in order to apply the totality of the circumstances test, what that actually means, right? So here are some of the questions that, you know, have occurred to me. So for example, let's say you have an individual who is, has been here on an H-1B for several years, 
maybe this individual's from India, and they are finally getting to the point where they are uh, eligible to apply for adjustment of status. And unfortunately, the applicant uh, is diagnosed with cancer and cannot work, right? And has a, a, a terminal illness. So this individual has lived in America for a very, very long time, probably has health insurance, right? But is terminally ill and can't work, you know, but is also the primary applicant in a green card case. What does that mean? You know, with, with USCIS now taking into consideration a person's age, health, um, whether or not the person is able to work, whether or not the person has adequate like health insurance, what what does that financial picture look like? I mean, even um, middle class or upper middle class families in the United States have fallen into hard times as a result of, you know, astronomical m medical bills, thereby resulting in the term medical bankruptcy. You know what I'm saying? So I I I'm just curious as to like, well, what does that look like? Is this person precluded from qualifying for a green card, you know, or conversely? What about the uh, individuals who want to sponsor an elderly parent, you know, which is a little outside of what we see on a day to day basis, but feels like kind of a personal example. You know, you've got an individual who is a U.S. citizen, has been waiting for the day when they can sponsor their parent to come to the United States. This parent is living abroad probably in a third world country, is old, obviously doesn't have a job, probably doesn't have much earning potential. You know what I'm saying? Most likely does not have proficiency in English, right? What does that look like? How are those factors going to count against this individual? You know, obviously, you know, if we were to give the government the benefit of the doubt, we would say, well, they're going to look at, quote unquote, the totality of the circumstances. And as long as the sponsor has, you know, sufficient income and assets and seems to be in a financially solid situation, he or she clearly can support their elderly parent, no problem, you know. But the fact that there are people who now are precluded from working towards bringing their parents to the country, which is oftentimes a goal for so many families, just rubs me the wrong way. The one thing I would emphasize here, you know, the requirements of the poverty guidelines. So I'm looking at the poverty guidelines on the USCIS website. And there is, as USCIS says, a the following factors would weigh heavily against a finding that an alien is likely to become a public charge. So anyone making at least 250% of the federal poverty guideline for his or her household size. So just to give that some perspective, so we're talking around roughly a family of two or three. So a family of two, the poverty guideline is 21,000. For a family of three, it's 26,000. So obviously, you know, for our clients who are making six figures, um, they're going to have the presumption that they're not going to be a public charge. Um, I think the biggest rub is not necessarily going to be the fact that they're going to be found to, to not qualify under this new public charge rule. I think it's going to be burdensome in terms of having to provide credit reports and tax documents and potentially asset reports, information for spouses, which otherwise would not have been provided. So I think it's just going to become a, a drain on a lot of folks just in terms of 
pulling together paperwork, I think the applications are still going to go through. Um, and then I think, you know, to earlier points, we just don't know how, how long, you know, the, the review process for this is going to take, whether it's going to add to adjudication times or add to how, how adjudicators look at applications when they do these interviews. For more content and immigration updates, please follow us at EIGlaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG Nerds Podcast to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.